John 1, 35 to 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, meaning teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, meaning Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, meaning Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. Back in the summer of 2009, uh, when Roz and I were newly married, we moved from Rhode Island, uh, where I grew up and where Roz went to school, and we moved to the city. And one of the first things we did within a few weeks of arriving to the city is that we joined a community group. And that turned out to be one of the best decisions that we ever made. And it's because it's been one of the most important and impactful ways that our faith has grown over the years. And now, more than 13 years later, amazingly, some of our very closest friends in the city have come out of that very first group in 2009. And in more recent years, one of the highlights of our summer is an end-of-August vacation that we take together with some of the friends from this community group. This past summer, we rented an Airbnb in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's, it's this converted farmhouse and we spent a week there with the 11 of us, six adults and our five kids. And it's become one of the highlights of our year because we get to leave the hustle and bustle of New York City. And we get to live on a farm, to live with animals. And there's seemingly endless open space. And then when the sun sets at night, it seems to take forever because there aren't tall buildings blocking the sun. And as you look into the horizon, you can see as far as your eye can see. And so the sunset just keeps setting slowly forever and ever. And so it's one of the most fun and restful times of our year, and we look forward to it so much. And one of the benefits of a, of a, of a vacation actually isn't the vacation itself. It's the anticipation of it. And when you have something that you're planning, you're very much looking forward to, it creates a sense of excitement and anticipation, especially as it gets closer and closer, closer and what the research shows us is that there's joy and excitement in the planning of the vacation. So it's not just the vacation itself, but it's in looking forward to it. And so you actually begin to enjoy the benefits of the vacation long before you actually go. 
And that's certainly the case for our end-of-year trip this past summer. And so as the days were getting closer and closer to our trip, Roser and I were, we were beginning to feel this excitement, and this joy, and this anticipation. And we wanted to share that with our, our son, Andrew. But the problem was that as a three-year-old, he didn't really have a lot of prior experiences to understand what he was going to experience. And so he couldn't even begin to imagine what the trip was going to be like. For example, one of the many stops on the trip was going to be Hershey Park. And he's never seen an amusement park before. So for me to try to explain to him and get him excited about an amusement park just didn't really work. It's something that you have to really see for yourself. Or another example, if I tried to describe to him, this is what it's going to be like the first time you ride on a roller coaster. Words just fail to do it justice. You just have to see it for yourself. You have to do it firsthand. You have to come and see. Because apart from seeing and experiencing it firsthand, words and descriptions will never capture the actual experience. And I think that's what's happening in this passage when the disciples meet Jesus. They can't even begin to imagine who this, this rabbi, Messiah, Lamb of God, Son of God, Logos is. They can't imagine the kind of impact that he will have on their lives and indeed on all things, including the history of the world. And so let's look at what this passage shows us about Jesus calling his first disciples. Let's look at the invitation that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. And then let's look at the insight that Jesus has into their lives. And then finally, we're going to look at the, the power that Jesus has to transform their lives. So let's start with Jesus' invitation to come and see. And we see this twice in the passage. We see these words in verse 39, and then we see it again in verse 46. The gospel stories all begin with the story of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner to Jesus. And his role, as uh, Scott mentioned last week, is to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God is near and that the long-awaited Messiah promised in the scriptures has come. And so John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples when Jesus passes by and he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God. And when these two disciples of John hear this, they're intrigued by John's word, and so they begin to follow Jesus, quite literally. And then in verse 38, Jesus turns around, he sees the two disciples of John following him, and then he asks them this simple but rather profound question, what are you seeking? And on one hand, it's a simple and straightforward question. Two people start to follow you, and so you turn around and ask them, what do you want? But on the other hand, these are the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And as we will see with so much of John's writings, John, uh, Jesus often speaks at two different levels. There's Jesus' words plainly understood on the surface, but then there's often a, a deeper meaning. And when we take a closer look at this statement that Jesus makes, what are you seeking? It really is the question for all the people who encounter and meet Jesus. What are you seeking? And for the two disciples, the answer to that question is that they're following John the Baptist because they are waiting for the hope of the Messiah, the, the one who's been promised in the Old Testament, who will come and set all things right with the world, who will usher in uh, uh, an era, a new age of God's peace, shalom, and renewal. And John just told them that Jesus is this incredible person, and so they begin to follow him. 
And so that's the answer to the question that Jesus asked these disciples. They uh, seek to know if this is really true. Is this really the person that we've been waiting for? And then when we see that Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to trust him right away, just right then and there, but instead he invites them to come and see. Come and get to know me. Come and get to know who I am. Come and see what I do. Because Jesus' claims are so extraordinary, they're so extraordinary, that they require us to examine him closely. He says, just don't take John's word for it. Come and see for yourselves. Come and investigate. Come and see the evidence. See if it adds up. And Jesus is saying, come and see in order that you might be overwhelmed with the evidence and with the reasons to believe in me. And so Jesus doesn't just ask for immediate faith. He only uh, rebukes his disciples much later for their faith when they've spent significant time with him. It's only then that he really asks them to, to trust him once they've gotten to know them. But Jesus says, come and see in order that you might believe. And that's both an invitation and a promise. And that's very much describes what happened to me. I uh, grew up in a home uh, where we didn't really believe in God. But as I asked questions, as I sought after answers about who Jesus was, the evidence began to add up. It began to make sense, and the gospel became beautiful and compelling to me. And I began to see in many ways that faith in Jesus began to deeply change my life. And so I would describe my faith in Jesus very much along the lines of, of how C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, and he wrote this. He says that I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Right? So Jesus invites us to see the evidence, to come and see who he is, and by seeing who he is, it just makes sense of everything else in our lives. And so if you're a skeptical, a person who's skeptical by nature, like me, I hope that Jesus' words encourage you because it's an invitation to see who he is, to see the evidence, to weigh his claims, to explore his life. And it's in the light of seeing these things that we might believe in him. And in my experience, as those who are, who are most skeptical, who have the most questions, are often those who have come to have the, the deepest and most robust faith in Jesus. Skeptics are often skeptical because they care so much at getting at the truth. And so we see skeptical people in the scriptures. And so it's an invitation to come and see. And so faith isn't antithetical to reason. Faith simply means that you're willing to travel the road to find truth, uh, and truth that is often not easy or obvious to find. And when you think about it, all new knowledge, all new knowledge always begins with faith because you don't yet know. And so it always begins with faith. And so one of the first things that we see in John's gospel is this invitation for us to come and to see, to come with an open mind and to come with an open heart, like those like disciples who met Jesus, that our lives might be changed forever, that having encountered Jesus, we might become different. And that's one of the exciting things about a Sunday service, that as we come in, as we encounter uh, the true and living God, as we encounter Jesus Christ, we can leave, change, and transform forever. And that's the, the hope and the possibility that I hope that we enter into this sermon series as we uh, see who Jesus is, as John shows us that. 
And one of the small details from this passage that many scholars point out is at the end of verse 39, and it's really a small detail. And it says that it was about the 10th hour. And this is really an unusually specific detail about the time of day. And it doesn't really contribute to the narrative in any way because there's no other reference to time in the story. Right? It's an irrelevant detail. It doesn't really make sense. But it's interesting because you never see this level of detail in ancient literature except in eyewitness accounts. You don't ever see this in, in literature like legends or mythologies, but you do see them all throughout the Gospels. And what many scholars include is that the unnamed disciple, this Andrew, and the other disciple following John the Baptist is actually John, the writer of this Gospel. And the reason um, that the time is mentioned is that it was such a significant moment in John's own life that he remembers the precise time of day that it happened. It's a time that he met Jesus for the first time. He spent the whole day with Jesus, and then his life was changed forever. It's similar how we can recall where we are when a significant uh, event happens in history. And so that's what's happening here. And so he writes, it was about the 10th hour, the moment when we discovered who Jesus really was. And this is also a significant moment for the other disciple, Andrew, the disciple uh, who, is, who is with John, the evangelist. And we see this in verse 41. Because the first thing that Andrew does upon meeting Jesus and spending a day with him is that he goes and finds his brother Simon. And the Greek text, text really emphasizes the urgency that Andrew uh, has in finding his brother. And so this is the first thing that happens, is that he meets this extraordinary person and the first thing he wants to do is to tell someone else. Is this true? Can this really be possible? And then when Andrew sees Simon, he doesn't just say, Simon, take my word for it. Instead, he says, come and see for yourself. And we actually named our, our son Andrew because of this very passage, because the first thing that, that Andrew does is he finds his brother. He's really the first disciple of Jesus. And his claim to fame is that he tells someone else about who Jesus is. And then uh, he fades away into the background, and then Simon becomes uh, a very visible leader of the church. And so we thought that would be a great name to live up to, to be one who tells others about Jesus Christ. And, and we see the same thing in the second part of our passage with Philip and Nathaniel, starting in verse 45. Once Philip encounters Jesus, the first thing he does is he tells Nathaniel, and he tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about the one whom the prophets wrote also, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But Nathaniel is a skeptic. His initial reaction is one of doubt and skepticism. Uh, there, there's no way that you found the Messiah. And he's from where? Can there be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? So his first reaction is to doubt. Nathaniel is a skeptic. But then Jesus extends to him the same invitation that Jesus gives to the earlier disciples. He says, come and see. Come and see. Let's find out. Let's go together and find out. So that's Jesus' invitation to his disciples to come and see. Let's take a look at the second point, Jesus' insight into Nathaniel and Simon's life. In verse 47, when Jesus sees Nathaniel coming towards him, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael is completely astonished at Jesus' words. How do you know me? Jesus, and, and, and he's surprised because his words isn't about 
uh, something superficial about Nathaniel, but he's talking about Nathaniel's character. Because what we see is that Nathaniel is a plainly spoken person. He's someone who calls as he sees it, and so he's surprised by how Jesus so accurately describes him. He says, yeah, you nailed it. That's me. How do you know me? And Jesus' response is, I don't just know you, but I saw you. And he says to them, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. And Jesus doesn't explain what he means by this uh, in the text, but we can infer from the way that uh, Nathaniel reacts that what Jesus' words were, were deeply personal and deeply significant to Nathaniel. It's not that Jesus merely saw him and could describe what he was doing, but it was, I think, so much more than that. It's a common Jewish practice to sit under the shade of a fig tree and to meditate on scripture and to pray to God. And so when Jesus sees Nathaniel under the fig tree, um, I think it's more about how he knows what Nathaniel might have been praying for and longing for in that moment under the fig tree. So that when Jesus mentions this to him, he's utterly astonished. He's utterly convinced that Jesus is the Son of God that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus sees Nathaniel's heart. He knows his deepest prayers to God. Maybe Nathaniel was praying, Lord, give me a sign or something very specific so that when Jesus mentions that moment, he's utterly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. But even then, Jesus says, you believe in me because of that, because I saw you under the fig tree. And he says to them, you haven't seen anything yet. You're going to see heaven open up the place where heaven and earth meet, that's me. That's no longer going to be the temple in Jerusalem or any other place, but it's in and through me, the Son of God, that heaven and earth will come together. And the other dramatic moment in the passage is earlier in verse 42, uh, which happens to Simon when Andrew brings him to Jesus. And it's so simple and it's so unexpected that we could easily meet, uh, miss the significance of what is happening. In verse 42, it says that Jesus looked at Simon. And in the Greek, it's, it's more than just uh, the idea of looking as, as a sense of glancing, but it's as if Jesus stared intently at Simon. And there was this long, dramatic moment. And he's, in, he's gazing at Simon, and he says to him, you are Simon, son of John. And then he calls him you will be called Kephas, which means Peter. And so as soon as Jesus sets his eyes on Simon for the very first time, he sees something that no one else has seen before. And so when Jesus looks at Simon, what does he see? He calls him the name Peter, which is Kephas in Greek, which means rock. Peter, the rock, solid, steady, unmovable, he will become one of the great leaders of the early church. And in fact, he will say later on to Peter, uh, on this rock, I will build my church. But if we know Peter's story, you know that he's anything but solid and steady. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. On the night that, uh, uh, that Jesus was betrayed unto death, Jesus tells his disciples that he must depart and leave. And where he is going namely the cross, they cannot follow. And of course, Simon Peter, of all the disciples, boldly corrects and rebukes Jesus and tells him, I will lay down my life for you. 
I'm ready to die for you no matter what. And then Jesus tells his disciples that on this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. But Jesus says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter is insistent. Even after I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But if you've read the story, you know that, in fact, Peter uh, denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. It's recorded in all four Gospels, so it's a well-known story in the early church, as if to remind the church leaders that this bold and fearless Peter that everyone knows was a much different person when he first met Jesus. And true to his name that Jesus gives to him, Peter indeed becomes the rock of the early church. If you only read the book of Acts, you would think that Peter is this fearless, steady, bold, courageous leader, willing to do anything for Jesus. And so what happened? How do we, where do we see Jesus' power to transform? How did Simon become Peter? And for Peter and all of Jesus' disciples, it was Jesus' resurrection that changed everything. That because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he left uh, the disciples with the gift of the Holy Spirit, which gave birth to this new community of changed people, the church. And from the first moment that Jesus sees Peter, he sees Peter not as he is in the present, not Simon the fisherman, but Peter, the great fisher of men the rock on which Jesus will build his church, the one who will eventually give his life for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus sees this in the very first moment that he lays his eyes on Peter. Jesus sees Peter in the way that that we want to be seen, not as we presently are, but as the people who we might become through God's transforming grace. And in giving him a new name, Jesus is claiming this extraordinary authority to redefine Peter's whole identity, his whole purpose in life. And he's saying to Peter, you don't yet know it, but I already know you. And you thought that you were looking for me? Well, I've actually been looking for you. Do you see? I know everything about you, and I'm going to build the church and even change the history of the world through you. And that's also true for Nathaniel. It's not that that they had found the Messiah, but the Messiah had found them, that they discover what the one who truly knows them like no one else has ever known them before. I think of a later story where uh, the woman by the well in Samaria says the same thing. Come see a man who knew everything I ever did. That's one of the things that we want more than anything else is to be deeply known and loved. We want deep connections. We want close friendships. We wanted to be, to be connected to a purpose that's far bigger than ourselves. And we want our lives to matter. We want others to see us the way that Jesus sees Peter. And indeed, how he sees us as who we will become through divine, transforming grace. And Peter gets all this in just meeting Jesus for the first time. And this is the nature of, of true friendship. It's the idea that, that you get me, that you really know and understand me. It's the idea of being known and loved. And that's what the disciples find when they meet Jesus. And I think that's what we all need from God as well. 
Let me end by uh, giving us two uh, brief implications for us from this passage about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The first one is that you're excited to tell others about what Jesus has done for you. That's the first implication of this text. Not out of a sense of duty or obligation or something we ought to do, but out of a sense of excitement and joy for what we have found in Jesus. Come and see becomes go and tell. And then the second implication is that you see people, you begin to see people the way that Jesus does. And this, what this means is that there are no hopeless causes. There are no people beyond the reach of God's grace. Think of the most difficult and challenging person in your life right now. How do you see that person? How do you think of that person? How do you love that person? I think that answer to that question is very much, uh, in my mind, an indication of your experience of God's grace. Because the more you've experienced God's grace, the more easily, the more naturally, the more freely you are to extend that grace to other people, especially those who are most difficult and challenging. So I think that's a good test of our spirituality. Think of the people who are most difficult to be around and think about how you see, how you think of that person. Because for Jesus... I could imagine that his disciples were very much those kinds of people. And so you begin to see the Simons in your life the way Jesus does, because you see them not as they are today, but as who they might become through God's transforming grace. In Jesus, we see the one who truly sees us, and he invites us to come and follow him. He is the, the light of the world who sheds his light onto our lives, into our lives, so that we begin to see us the way he sees us. And we begin to see the possibility of who we might become through the work of his extraordinary grace. And when Jesus asks, what are you seeking? The truth is, he already knows the answer to that question. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He wrote, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There were all sorts of things in this world that offer to give, to give it to you, but they, really, but they never really quite keep their promise. It is in receiving the love of God in Jesus, the love that comes into this world, that we are healed, restored, made whole. Jesus chooses to lay down his life, to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world right? because of his extraordinary love for us. And so that when we come to him, we find what our hearts most long for. And we are able to receive Jesus, from Jesus, all that we need, and beyond all that we could hope for, and all that we can imagine. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you know us to the very depths of our being, that you know us through and through. You know our joys, and you know our sorrows. And you've given us everything we need that we might know you, the God who sees us. Thank you for giving us your son, that we, while we were still sinners, he died for us. We pray that you would reorder the desires of our hearts, that we might love you and find the fullness of life that is found in Jesus Christ. Grant us humility to see ourselves the way you see us, and help us to look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Give us joy in knowing your love for us 
And out of the abundance of that joy, send us out to serve the world and to tell others about what we have seen and how our lives have been changed by you. Fill us with the joy of your presence as we come to the table to commune with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.